All right, we've been studying the book of Colossians, and for those of you who have not been a part of this discussion, the book of Colossians is a very interesting book because it was written to a church that Paul never visited, but yet the problem there was so great that he thought he needed to write this particular church because he cared about them. And for those of you who are here on Wednesday nights, what was the problem in Colossae? Gnosticism. A uh, form of Gnosticism, and these men, uh, by the very word, the Greek word uh, uh, gnosis means to know. They believed they had special knowledge, and they were uh, trying to tell the uh, Christians there at the church that they were not saved. Instead, uh, they were evil, and they needed to do all these different things in order to be saved. Uh, they kept making them doubt their salvation, kept making them say that if you're going to be saved, then you need to climb these different rungs of the ladder. And, and Paul deals with this particular uh, thing in this particular book. He spends the first part of the book really building up the church and restoring their confidence once again. And what we have going on today in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7 is we kind of have a transition taking place. Uh, as I told you before, Paul likes to build on everything that he says, and he keeps building up, keeps building up till he reaches his ultimate point. And um, then he'll use transitional phrasing to get to the next thing he wants to build up. And that's what we have in place in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. He has finished a discussion that we're going to talk about a a little bit here in a moment. And now he's transitioning to what will begin in chapter 8 where he goes into detail dealing with some of the specific issues that are going on in the church there some of the specific false teaching that is happening at the church at Colossae, and he'll spend some time on that. But as he gets to that particular point, he wants to transition, as I said, and so that's what we have in these first seven verses of chapter 2. And so let's see what we can learn from these seven verses. Verse 1 begins, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many has not seen my face in the flesh. First part of this verse, he says, For I would that ye knew. What do you think he's talking about? What does he want them to know? All right, how much he's agonizing for them. Um, the word for there is a transitional phrase where he's transitioning from what he's said thus far to what he wants them to understand now. And so what he's doing here is he is saying, um, this is why I have said all that I have said. I have said all these things because of the great conflict or the great struggle that I have within me. All right, before we start looking about this great struggle or conflict that he has in him, um, what is it he wished that they had, let me put it this way, what is it that he has already said? That he says, this is why I have said this. This is what's caused the struggle in him, but he's already said some things that has brought him to to this struggle. It's interesting, the word for conflict here, and some of you may have struggle, you have contending is what you have. It's the Greek word agonia, which is the word we get agony from um, when you transliterate it. So he was in agony over something. And... As, the, as it reads in the original language, he's saying, this is why I have said what I have said because of the agony I'm going through. Once again, I'm back to not why he is in so much in agony, 
but what is it he has said to bring him to this point? What was the thing that was causing him conflict and everything that he has said so far? What was he trying to impress upon him, Michael? They weren't feeling so perfect in Jesus Christ, were they? Uh, this is what, what I'm driving at and trying to get you to see. I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> earlier in the class that he builds upon and keeps building upon a certain idea. And his conclusion in that idea was that he wanted to present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. But look how, he, how long he's taken to get to that particular point and everything that he has said. As you read through chapter 1, look at all the different things he emphasizes. He talks about how that they have confident expectation, how they have a place reserved in heaven, how that they are partakers of the inheritance, how they are saints in the light, how they've been delivered, how they've been translated, how they've been forgiven, how they've found redemption, how that they were um, enemies and alienated from God, but now they're wholly unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Um, he's, he keeps building on this idea that he wants them to understand and be confident in their salvation. The Gnostics were saying, <clears throat> you can't be confident in your salvation. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to come to us for the special knowledge <clears throat> so that you can attain the level that you need to attain. He's saying the gospel is enough. You don't need anything else. This should put an end to this once and for all that the whole purpose of my preaching, the whole purpose of the gospel, not only to you but to everybody, is to present you complete and perfect in Christ. That's what he wants them to understand and appreciate, and that is why <clears throat> he has said everything that he says, but he still is in agony. And here's the reason why he's in agony. He's in agony for them, and also for the church at Laodicea. Now, we don't know what's going on in the church at Laodicea. Paul says nothing more about it here. Laodicea was 13 miles west of, Cla of Colossae, and it may be that they were going through the same thing that this church was going through. And so he wanted to make sure that everything that he said to the church at, at Colossae was said to the church at Laodicea. Yes, Karen? Yeah, they evidently were a very wealthy church. They were rich in material things, but weak in faith. Um, but since Paul is dealing with Gnosticism here, more than likely that's something that was happening in the church there, maybe caused some of the problems that they had. But Paul is in agony. He has said everything that he said to reach this point, and now he has this great conflict, and the great conflict is at the end of verse 1. Why is he in agony? He said everything that he says. Now he says, I'm in agony. And the reason is this. Yes, Michael. All right. He says at the end of verse 1, For as many have not seen my, uh, my face in the flesh. A little bit later on, he's going to bring this up again. He feels like if he was just there, if he could come have a face-to-face -face with these people, he could drill it into their heads, they need to quit listening to these Gnostic teachers and be confident in their faith that Jesus Christ is all you need. 
He's already pointed out that Jesus Christ is God. He's already pointed out that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He's already pointed out that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. He's already pointed out that Jesus Christ has done absolutely every single thing that is necessary for a person to be saved. And he still doesn't feel like that's enough. He says, if I could just be there and confront this issue face to face, be able to see you and comfort you and deal with these teachers, it would make me happy. But, but he's frustrated. He's frustrated because he can't be there. You've, you've maybe even experienced some of this. <clears throat> we still have one daughter in college, but we've had three other uh, children that go through college, and they would call from time to time. Um, all, three of, all four of them went to um, Free Hardman, which is on the other side of Tennessee, about a 10 hour drive from here and they would call sometime and they'd be so upset about something maybe somebody was picking on them maybe they thought a teacher wasn't treating them right and as a father you care about your children and you just wish well I wish I was there if I was there I'd go talk to this person I would go confront this teacher I'd go straighten this out if I was there and you're very frustrated because of the distance from which they uh, they are from you and so you can't do anything but just be frustrated about it. And I think Paul was feeling this too. Where was Paul at this time? Why couldn't he go to him? He was in prison. This was one of the prison epistles. So he was frustrated with the fact that, that he, he hurt for these people. He wanted to help these people. He said everything he can to build up their faith and confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now this is tearing at him. But this is what he wants them to be. In verse 2, he says that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Uh, the reason why he wanted them wanted to be there is, first of all, it says that their hearts might be comforted. Uh, he realized this was a group of people who were having trouble. Uh, it's interesting, the word here in the Greek for comforted uh, carries with it the word picture of a general giving his troops a pep talk. Um, picture in your mind, if you will, a group of soldiers that are, are, are fighting in a great battle. And it seems like the, the odds are overwhelming, like they're going to be overrun. And the general comes in and he gathers all the soldiers around him and he says, Men, we can do this. Take hope. You can, you can win this battle. Don't you give up the fight. And that's the idea of comfort here. It's not so much as the comfort of someone who is dealing with bereavement or whatnot. It's the idea of taking comfort in the fact that you can do that. And he talks about them being knit together in love. Um, what kind of thing does that picture in your mind when you think about somebody being knit together in love? All right, family. Um, I think of a cohesiveness. I think of... Um, if, uh, I picture in my mind uh, if somebody is, is needing some comfort and some love, a group of people gathering around them and forming like a close group. They're like knit together. Uh, when we uh, knit something now, we, we co are combining several strands into one, and that's the idea there. But he really nails it in the middle of the verse when he says, unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. What in the world does he mean when he says all riches of the full assurance of understanding? 
What is that talking about? They need to come to an understanding. Paul had just spent this entire first chapter talking about this. They need to come to an understanding of it. If they come to an understanding of it, then they will have full assurance. And if a person has full assurance of their salvation, what do they have? They have the most valuable thing that there is in the world. Paul is saying, I want you to have no doubts. Quit doubting this. Come to a full assurance of understanding. And this is based on what? When they acknowledge the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Now, for those of you who hadn't been here on Wednesday nights, this might sound a little odd to you, but those of you who have been here, what is this mystery? What is the mystery he's already exposed to them that they're supposed to have full assurance in? All right, we're talking about the gospel. How in the world was God going to save mankind? It wasn't a mystery in the sense as we talked about Wednesday night, it's like some kind of mysterious thing, but it was a secret that had been revealed. The prophets in the Old Testament, others in the Old Testament, even the angels couldn't figure out how God was going to make this happen. How was God going to redeem mankind? Specifically with the Colossians, how was he going to bring Jew and Gentile together? And so the mystery he's talking about here is the gospel, the plan of salvation. And so he had already talked about that earlier in the book. So what has he done? He's saying that you can gain such great wealth, the most valuable thing of all, when you come to a full assurance of understanding by acknowledging the gospel, the salvation, God's plan of redemption of God and of the Father and of Christ. And then he goes on and says, In whom, talking about Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, he's making a little dig here, isn't he? Who's he digging at? The Gnostics. They were saying, <clears throat> you need something more. You need special revelation from us. You need special knowledge from us. Only we can tell you what you need to do. You have to do this for us. If you're going to be saved, uh, you can't be confident in Jesus Christ. You can't be confident in, in what he has done for you. You've got to follow our particular plan. You've got to do what we tell you to do because we have special knowledge and we want to give you that special knowledge. But look what Paul is wanting them to know. He's saying that in Jesus Christ, that's where that special knowledge is. That's where the real treasure is. You don't need to look anywhere else. And him is the key. Roger mentioned last Wednesday night, uh, I, I forget what the question was, but he made the point that what Paul has been saying in this entire first chapter is that Jesus Christ is all we need, that in him is everything that we need to find. And that's what Paul is saying right here. He says, you don't need the Gnostics and their special wisdom and their special knowledge. You're going to find everything you need in Jesus Christ. And so he goes on in verse 4 and says, and this I say... This is the reason why I've been saying all this. Lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Yes, Julie. Absolutely. The Bible is such an amazing book because 
Um, I don't know who came up with this particular idea, but I've heard it my entire life. If you have just a sixth grade education, you can understand this enough that you can find out what you need to do in order to be saved, in order to be a part of the Lord's church. But it's also deep enough that we could spend hundreds of years studying and still not get everything out of it. Um, as I've told you before, every single time I teach class, I learn something new. Every time I look at a passage, um, there's sometimes things that I've never thought about that comes out of that passage if I really take the time to study it and meditate on it. Yes, Jeff? One of the things that, that Jeff alluded to that you who haven't been here on Wednesday night may not be aware of, but the Gnostics believed that the spirit was totally good and the flesh was totally evil and neither could the twain ever meet. And therefore, Jesus Christ really wasn't the Son of God because if he was human, then he was evil, and there's no way God could have everything to do with him. And so they came up with this crazy idea that sometimes that he was God and sometimes he wasn't God. Uh, at certain points in his life, he switched from being human to being God. Or the whole time he was here on earth, he was. Uh, there's a special word that the... Um, uh, Gnostics used called aeon, which is A-E-O-N, which meant that he was a, a spirit that had looked like a human, but he really wasn't a human, that he really didn't take on flesh. And so that's what Jeff's alluding to, and that's why Paul spends so much time pointing out that Jesus was flesh, and not only was he flesh, he was totally God, and that fleshly God died on the cross to save you from your sins. He spends almost the whole first chapter just nailing that down. And so that's what Jeff's alluding to, in case you weren't aware of how the Gnostics felt about that. Yes, Eric. <clears throat> we don't know exactly what's going on here. Keep in mind that the book of, in the book of Philippians and also in the book of Philemon, there is allusion to the fact of, of people that were in leadership positions at the church at Colossae. And um, we don't know exactly what was going on, but Paul speaks highly of them. It may have been that these men were just doing the best that they could do, and they just, they just couldn't. It was just so overwhelming. And oftentimes, as it is the case with church problems, sides develop, and it can be some of the nastiest stuff you've ever dealt with. Um, let me, Karen was next, and I'll come to you. Well, absolutely. Well, one of the, way, the easiest ways to, to tear down a person, and even people in cults and want, even interrogators who interrogate uh, enemy combatants and whatnot, is to create doubt within that person's mind. And that's what the Gnostics did. They did their very best to create doubt within the Christian's mind. And they kept feeding this and kept saying, you know, what if, what if, what if you're not saved? What if Jesus Christ really wasn't the Son of God? What if? And if you take that and start destroying their faith, they've got to put their faith in something else, which they accomplished by putting their faith in these leaders. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. A person becomes a Christian. Uh, Paul, you know, even going to address this in a little bit, um, they immediately start having doubts about their salvation. And he's going to address that here in just a minute, but good point. Did, Michael, do you want to say something? I saw a thought on another hand. But here's why I want you to notice something he says here that I think is interesting and kind of puzzles me a little bit. And if I lived back in that time, maybe I could understand it better. But after saying everything that he has said about how that, that you need to realize that, that everything that you need, all the riches of the full assurance are found in Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, and the reason why I'm telling you all this in verse 4, the reason why I'm telling you all this, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now I'll read that and I say, what? 
If I lived back then, there's nothing that the Gnostics could have told me that would make me change my mind about Christianity. But there was something going on by what they were saying. So the question might be, um, what could a Gnostic say to a Christian that would entice them to give up their faith in Jesus Christ and start following them? What would be the point? Okay, so they were, they were not grounded enough that they were able to pull them away and pull them to something else. Okay, and so that's something that enticed them. What else? Yes, Julie. All right. They weren't following enough rules, and therefore, since they weren't following enough rules, then they don't have it right. All right. But still there's the idea of enticing. There's something that would entice someone. It's not just more than a mental exercise. There is some type of, of real enticement here. Eric, what are you going to say? Okay, all right. Here's something that's very odd about people. Sometimes people don't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and do what's necessary to obey the gospel because they think it's too easy. Some people think that they would feel more saved if somebody told them, if you want to go to heaven, here's a flight of 100 stairs. I want you to get on your knees, and I want you to walk up those stairs on your knees to you to get to the top, and your knees will be all bloody and bruised, and then you'll be saved. Now, why in the world that has an appeal to people, I don't know. But that's kind of what the Gnostics were doing. They were talking about different levels of of attainment. It's almost like they had ranking. You could be, uh, if you go ahead and you start doing what I say, first you'd be a Padawan Christian, borrowed from Star Wars. And then after you completed some more rungs of our level, then you could be a neophyte Christian. And then after that, you could be a Christian second class. And then you could be a Christian first class. And finally, you could be super Christian or saint boy or saint girl. Um, That is kind of appealing to people. First of all, they feel like they've done the work, which defies totally what Christianity is about. Secondly, it gives them the the opportunity to say, Oh, so you're just a patty one? Well, I want you to know that I'm a first-class Christian now. And so you can see how the appeal might be there. And these Gnostics, they were at the very top level. You know, if you want to know anything about anything, you had to come to them. Many years ago, there was a movement that took place in the Church of Christ that's now known as the International Church of Christ, but it started out as the Crossroads Movement, and then it turned into the Boston Movement, and then finally it became the International Church of Christ. But it was set up on a very similar hierarchy. You were given a prayer partner, and in order for you to reach any kind of spiritual maturity, you had to report to that prayer partner, and you had to turn your life completely over to them. And if you didn't reach a certain level of those prayer partners, then you were disgraced, you were shunned, you were treated awful. The whole group would would turn their back on you until you corrected yourself and you got to the point they wanted to. And then those prayer partners reported to some more people. It was a pyramid scheme in the church until you went to the ultimate, which was Randy McKean, and then he was the one that decided everything for everybody. Even the elders were under him. Uh, Eric? And, And what was Gnosticism? It was a blending of Judaism, Greek philosophy, Eastern mysteries or mystical things, and in and, and contemporary culture. And so you had, you had that actually going on there. Now, we're never good enough. Absolutely. And, and, and that bothers people to the point, well, let me find a way where I can show I'm good enough. 
And that's what the Gnostics were doing. Did you have a comment? Or you already? Okay, then Jamie. Yep, our sins never smell as bad as somebody else's sin, even if it's the same sin. Yes, Julie. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why Paul, he said he wanted them to be knitted together in love. That's what it was all about. Well, I think we've really done a good job of exploring that, but look at verse 5 before we run out of time here, because I'm going to try to get down through verse 7 if we can. He says, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Uh, he's now making a, he's readdressing what he said at the beginning of this chapter, but he's adding to it uh, to the point he made in verse 4, that they were those that would try to entice them, but he knows that they're standing fast. Your order and steadfastness of your faith in Christ is, is in the Greek, it's a military term. It means to bring the ranks together. It means to form a, a, a bulwark, if you will, a front line of resistance. So when the enemy comes, you're ready to repel the attack. And he says he knows that's going on there. But the first part of the verse says, For though I be absent with you in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit. He's going back to this great agony he was going through, that he wished he wasn't there. Well, I'm not there. And there's no way I can be there, because I'm in prison. But I want you to know I'm there with you in spirit. And, um, and that's the reason why he's writing this particular letter. Everything he's telling them, he wants them to know that though he can't be there physically, his mind and his heart and his spirit is with them. And it's like he's right there with them fighting this false doctrine with them. And so he's, he's coming back to that. And so he says, I want you to remain strong. I want you to put up a resistance. I want you to hold steadfast in the face of this enticement because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says something that, that we need to be reminded of so very often. And so oftentimes this verse is misinterpreted. But look very clearly what he says in verse 6. He says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him literally now. Now notice what he said there. First of all, he says, as ye have received Christ Jesus the Lord. When does a person receive Christ Jesus the Lord? When they're baptized. All right? So he says, he brings this up in their mind. You remember when you were baptized. You remember when you obeyed the gospel. That's the same way you need to be walking or thinking right now. So what has he done? What is he trying to get them to think about? Do what? All right, they're saved, but what aspect of it? All right, their dependence on Christ. But look at the picture he's painting. It's about their faith, but still the picture they're painting. There you go. Very good. When a person walk, gets, obeys the gospel, goes down to the front row or even through here privately with somebody else, and they're immersed in the water for the cleansing of their sins, and they rise over that water to walk in newness of life, is there ever a time in your entire life when you felt like you're saved? <laughs> if there ever was a time that you were saved, it had to be right then, wasn't it? <laughs> the moment you got out of the water, if there ever was a time, I mean, just be honest with that. But what starts happening as the days and the years go by? Life gets in the way. 
you start, their mind starts working on you. The doubts start. That's the devil exactly right. The day you come out of the baptistry, that Lord's day or whenever it was, that day you are rejoicing. Why? Because your sins have been washed away. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's a feeling that, that you just can't explain because everything has been forgotten. You're, you're as white as snow. The slate is clean. But after a day goes by or so, you think, well, you know, I'm not quite sure anymore. I messed up the other day. Oh, I know I prayed to God and, and, and I told him that I messed up and I know he's supposed to forgive me, but, you know, ever since that day, you know, things just hadn't been the same anymore. That's what Paul's alluding to. I th- was it Jeff that had a hand up over here? And, and y'all alluded to this already, you know. We, we don't feel like we're good enough. We don't feel like it's fair. We don't feel like it's, you know, something we can even comprehend that 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 God would do something like that for us. But everything Paul has said to them up until this point, all he said in chapter 1 about uh, redemption, about reconciliation, about being holy and blameless and irreproachable in God's sight, comes to this point right here when he says, do you remember when you received Christ? Keep walking the same way. Keep living the same way as when you received Christ. Beverly? Absolutely. Um, Verse 7, so we can close. After saying what he says in verse 6 where the sentence begins, if you remember when you received Christ, continue to to walk that way, he goes on and says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Um, He uses some beautiful word pictures here. After saying, remember how it was when you basically came out of the water. He says, let that be rooted in you. In other words, just like a plant plants roots to give you stability. Let that be rooted in you. The word built up here in the Greek carries with it the idea of putting down a foundation. You're building up a house and you're starting with a good foundation. What happened when you became a Christian, that needs to be rooted in you. That needs to be a foundation in you. Um, and then he uses the word established. And I'm just curious, anybody have anything different from established? Strengthen? Anything different? There's not a good English word to do this justice here. But in the Greek, the idea is, uh, they use this particular word in the Greek to mean something, has, something that has been proved without a doubt. Uh, absolutely, I like that. So look what he's done here. He, he says, you take what I've told you, Remember how it was when you first became a Christian and you root yourself in that. You make a firm foundation in that because it has been proven without a doubt. And how has it been proven without a doubt? Well, go back and read chapter 1 of Colossians. The man has made the case. He has built theme after theme after theme on Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done and how we are saved because of what he has done. It has been proven without a doubt. And so look what the result should be now that our time is out. If we truly believe everything that Paul has said thus far, and those people in Colossae believed, what's the end result? What's the last part of verse 7? Thanksgiving. We have so many things to be thankful for. For which to be thankful. 
And that is a, a, a good way to end, but I like how he puts it here in the Greek. You are overflowing with thanksgiving. We certainly have a lot of things to be thankful for because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But we have to stop there. Thank you so much for your comments. They were so good.